Well, it's uh, good, good to be back with you again for round two. And uh, yeah, we'll pick up where we left off. Uh, last time we took a look at uh, the message of Revelation, but uh, when the slide comes up, there's, a, there's an image that's going to be kind of the theme or the meme throughout this, uh, this uh, evening for us. And it's uh, not up there yet. Well, when our, when our uh, dutiful sound folks or techie folks get that, we're going to be talking about the seven churches because they come along in chapter two and three. Are we up there yet? Okay. Anyone recognize that's a uh, picture from Greek mythology? Anyone know who that is underneath the boulder? Trump. <laughs> Trump. <laughs> yeah, he's under a boulder, all right. Yeah, some of it's of his own making, probably. Uh, no, that's, that's Sisyphus. Now, that's a good name for your kid or your pet, okay? But that's Sisyphus. Uh, anyone know what his destiny in Greek mythology was? Futility. He's the, he's the picture of futility. He's the picture of someone who endlessly struggles. He, he made some gods mad by being deceitful and arrogant, and they condemned him to roll this huge boulder up a hill all day, and at the end of the day, he's at the top, it comes back, and that's, that's his fute. He's the picture of futility. He just rolls a boulder up, and it starts back the same way every day. Um, I'm using Sisyphus as a picture of, of what uh, we're talking about today in our work through the book of Revelation. Remember, uh, you know, John Stott's words were good. I should have thought of them myself. Uh, Revelation is a pastoral book. It's a book about how to overcome. It's a book for the church of all centuries, not just the first century, those seven churches of Asia Minors, they needed to hear the message of how to overcome. And uh, we walk through a little bit of the order and uh, the picture of overcoming begins with you get a good dose of scary, shiny Jesus. That's the Jesus we meet, who is the revelation of Jesus Christ of chapter one. We meet him in chapter one, verses 12 through 17. And he, we call him Scary Shiny because that's what he was to John. He was frightening. And John had seen all kinds of Jesuses, and we went through this a little bit. He saw the Jesus who walked the earth, who suffered and uh, was mortal, who could be killed, who shed blood. He saw the Jesus who rose from the dead. But this Jesus uh, was frightening to him. And this is how the journey of overcoming starts. You get a dose of Jesus. You get it deep, and you get it hard in your soul. And there's where the that's where the message begins for us. And so we're going to take our message uh, about Sisyphus is going to walk us through this because he's a picture of something we meet in verse 9, and we've used that kind of as a template for where we're going. You see that? Uh, the tribulation and perseverance, and there's a couple of other things in that verse too, and the kingdom that are in Jesus. The word tribulation literally means a squeezing, right? And this letter 
or this apocalypse, this epistle, whatever you want to call the, the document that John is composing under inspiration is written to churches that are being squeezed. And their squeezing comes in different ways, and it's a message about how to resist, how to not just endure and knuckle down and kind of grit your teeth through it. No, it's how to flourish and be victorious in squeezing. And so if that's your picture of the Christian life as Sisyphus, you know, I'm under the rock all the time, Revelation has an answer for you. And it's an answer they needed to hear in the first century, and the church of every century, including ours, needs to hear it. Persecution, squeezings come in different ways. There have been some different interpretations of these seven churches. We're going to spend tonight in these two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, the letters to the seven churches. Different interpretations through church history. Okay, there have been uh, interpretations that each one of these churches, starting with Ephesus, ending with Laodicea, they represent seven kinds of Christians. Okay, and so it gets the, that's an, that's an ancient ver version. Victorinus, uh, he wrote about that, that uh, these are seven kinds of Christians, and there's a diagnosis and a remedy for every kind of Christian and the different kinds of Christians that there are. There have been other interpretations that represent that, that each one of these seven churches represents seven epochs or eras of church history. Have you heard that one before? I had heard that one before too and never met a living soul who believed it until I went to Ukraine. Those brothers and sisters believe that and they believe we're in the last one, which is the church of Laodicea. Anyone remember what their problem was? Lukewarm. I've heard that, uh, you know, that just goes to show that lukewarmness, it was in the first century, Laodicea, and if people think it's their time, uh, lukewarmness is an issue of all times, okay? I think a better way to uh, look at these churches is that these are literal churches that had issues of the first century. They are transcendent, meaning they are principles here that churches of all times. I think if you limit, you know, we're in the last age, it makes you not look at the previous ages, okay, or the previous churches as if there's something I, I don't need to learn. I'm in the last age. I need to worry about being lukewarm, and I need to worry about Jesus spitting me out of his mouth and stuff like that. No, there's lessons in each one of these churches because we're all squeezed. There are lessons on being squeezed and how to respond to it. And so that's where we're going, the tribulation and the perseverance, the overcoming that is in Jesus. So we need to ask a question, which Jesus are we talking about? I'm going to put that up there. We got a couple of options. Run down the list there for me, okay? We got mortal man Jesus. We talked about him. His name was Jesus, son of Joseph. He was the builder. All right. Uh, by the way, carpenter is not the best translation of the word that's used, of a tech tone. Uh, first of all, there wasn't a lot of wood in Judea of the first century for him to make a living, uh, you know, being a woodsmith. He was uh, most likely a builder. He was the guy, Tim the tool man. You know, he had the uh, tool belt on. He worked with stone. And he worked probably on the kinds of things that he spoke about in his parables. Millstones, cisterns, towers. And so this is, this is a picture of Jesus. He's not in his little studio all the time. He's out on the job site. Okay, there's a huge theology of work here. 
And I'll come back and do that sometime. I'm just kidding. But Jesus, let's not forget his first career. 20 years he was building. 20 plus years. Uh, What's that mean? Uh, We need to ask the question, what's God telling us when Jesus, the prototype human, comes and works with his hands 20 plus, more years than he did his Messiah work, all right? So that's Jesus, son of Joseph. Is it the second Jesus that we meet? Resurrection man. This is the, four, this is the shortest period of Jesus. It lasted only 40 days before he went and became scary, shiny Jesus of the exaltation of Revelation. Well, the Jesus who walks among the seven churches that we read in chapters 2 and 3, it's the scary, shiny Jesus, but he's the sum of them all. He's the one who says to the church of Laodicea, I overcame, meaning he walked the journey of squeezing too. And so he can talk to them. He says all the time to them, I know you. I know this about you. I know your, your success, I know, but I have this against you. So he knows them. It's the whole Jesus that we talked about last time. Martin Luther, we finished with a statement from him where he said the church needs the, the total Christ, the Christ of then who walked this earth, who knows what it is like to be squeezed in a mortal body from the different kind of resisting and the opponents that we face. And it's also the one who rose and triumphed over them, who is now, you could say, he's Teflon. Sin cannot touch him. Certainly his sin, he never had sin of his own that touched him, but the sin of others. If you just go back to being Jesus as the the builder. How many times do you think he had people trying to cut corners on their order and trying to get a fast deal off of him and manipulate how he had to deal with all of that junk we deal with too from other people? We also got that stuff that comes from ourself, too, which he didn't deal with that way. But he had passions that even the most sanctified of us, we don't have yet. He had holy passions working in here, too. And so don't get caught up and think, oh, my temptations are worse than Jesus's. Uh, sorry, that's not going to cut it. Even though he didn't have one of the things we're going to talk about, cravings of flesh, He still had cravings of a holy nature that we're working on, okay? And we're learning still. So anyway, that's another another subject. But it's the Jesus that's going to walk through the lamps, with the lampstand. He's walking among the churches. He knows them. That's the Jesus that we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to chapter 2. And uh, let's go on to the next one. Okay, letters to the seven churches. There's a template here. First point, uh, they have a pattern. Seven churches of Asia Minor, and uh, these uh, letters that he gives to them, he, uh, he identifies who's speaking to them all the time. But it is interesting, he doesn't say the same, he doesn't describe himself in the same way to all the churches. He notes different things about them, and at least five of them that I can tell. You don't have to push this at all. What he describes about himself is exactly on the need that they're facing, that he describes that that they need from him. Have you ever studied the names of God in the Old Testament? You know, the Muslims say they have 99 names of Allah. 
and, uh, some, and they all know them. And I'm thinking, ooh, if I had to have a test like that, could I do, uh, you know, 100 names of the living God? Well, you run through them in the Old Testament. The names appear, and he gives, he reveals something about himself when there's a need, particular need. When there's a need of provision, the name Jehovah Jireh comes out in Genesis chapter 22, providing the ultimate sacrifice, the reconciliation that will pave the way for us to be with God. When Hagar is in the wilderness and she is dying of thirst, and it is revealed to her where she can get water for her son and herself, the name El Royi, the God who sees, the God who sees me in my desperation and my need, the God who fights for me, the God who heals me, all of these names, God reveals himself according to a need, and Jesus is doing that here. Take a look at some of these. Uh, for example, uh, the church of Smyrna starts in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, the first and the last, that's how he's identified himself in first chapter already, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the blasphemy. Okay, He's, he's talking about and he's, he's telling them what's going to come. He says, behold, the devil is, is about to cast some of you in prison and you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. The one who has identified himself as the first and the last who was dead can talk to them about the trial that is coming that might entail death. Go to the church of Thyatira, down in verse 18. Oh, sorry, you can go to Pergamum. He's the next church, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. We read later in the book uh, that this sword comes from his mouth. It's an image of teaching and right doctrine. What's the problem they face there? It's bad teaching. Okay? So the one who, who knows and is the source of right teaching is going to talk to them about the problem they're having with false and bad teaching. How about the church of Thyatira? He strikes, he strikes, or he describes himself in verse 18, the son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. All of those descriptions, flaming eyes and burning, burnished uh, feet, those are majestic terms. We meet him later in the book when he comes back. Revelation 19, the Jesus who comes back with in the clouds, with, uh, you know, king of kings, he also has flaming eyes there. It's a picture of ruling. It's a picture of authority. And what's their issue? Or what he's going to promise them? He says, if you overcome, in verse 25, then you have the reference to Psalm 2, ruling and reigning. So the image of that he presents himself is often what is going on and what is tailored to what they're going to face or what they're promised. And so he tailors, like God has revealed himself all the way through with his names, the Christ of Revelation reveals himself perfectly matching the need of the moment. 
And that's a message for us, too. That's, how, that's the Jesus we have, the total Christ, in our need. There's never a moment when you don't have the full resources of God for you. I've recently watched my father and my wife graduate, uh, the last three years, both of them. And I have, I became very convinced because I saw Jesus show up for both of them. They did not walk that last journey by themselves. And I could see it. And don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not any good if you can't do certain things, if you don't function in a utilitarian way. No, God can use you, even in, in, in nearly a comatose state, he can use you to teach and to reflect himself because he's there. And I took away from that, when my time comes, he will be there. I don't need to fear that journey, that turn of my road. Jesus shows up when the need is, and he shows up with the grace for the moment. To expect, I mean, when you're hypothesizing and trying to see yourself in that position, you're not in the moment. And so the grace isn't there. And so it's hard to, oh, you're, we can get anxious about that. No, he shows up when the time comes, and he comes with the need answered. And he does it for these churches here. And so you can even see it in the way he describes himself to them. He knows their journey. And so the second thing that we uh, meet in these churches, the paradigm, I'm going to put the next point up there. He says, I know. I know your deeds. I have, and he will praise them. Very few of them just get a praise report. All right? I think, uh, and most of them get some critique in there. And uh, we're going to talk about the nature of the critique in more detail, but it all centers around how you've held fast. Have you held fast or not? Have you persevered? Or have you allowed other things to take and distract you? And so here's where we get the issue of overcoming. And the nature is overcoming is one who perseveres and one who holds fast. And you see these, these terms, they show up Every time they are praised, they are praised for being perseverant in his word. And when they are criticized, it's about not persevering. Okay? Take a look at verse 2 of chapter 2. He talks to the Ephesian church. I know your deeds and your toil. That's praise and perseverance. You cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. And you have perseverance, you have endured for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. And then he goes to, uh, he throws some shade on them. But I have this. See? Go to chapter, uh, 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. To Pergamum, he says, I know, where you, where you dwell, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast. So he praises them for holding fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things for you, goes on with them. Thyatira, down in verse 19, I know your deeds, 
your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first, but I have this. Uh, go down to um, the Church of Philadelphia in 3.8. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because, you're, because uh, you have a little power and have kept my word. By the way, also notice who talks to them. How does he describe himself in verse 7? He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. What's he tell them? He says, before you there's an open door that no one can shut. So the whole door and the opening, he's matching what they're facing and what, again, what they're going through. So it's going to be about um, persevering. It's going to be about enduring and staying faithful. That's what I tell my students. You know, when uh, things are getting hard in the semester, I put Jesus' words on them, and he says, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. <laughs> okay? And that's in a, an academic setting, you know, who, who will survive and pass the class. Right? So the idea of persevering is the central issue that these churches are praised for, and when they're criticized, it's about not persevering. Okay? And so overcoming, the message of how to be an overcomer is about fundamentally persevering. Uh, so let's go to the next one. Uh, there is, uh, the chief issue is overcoming the world. And we're going to talk about that. We're just kind of giving you an outline of what these seven letters, they all move in a particular pattern this way. It's about overcoming the world and go to the next one. And then he will give the remedy for them. And this is where we need to you know, sharpen our ears because this is the message to us too. Because we face world also. We face the other two enemies or the opponents also. The cravings that come from our weakened kind of dependent flesh that wants to be solving its problems by itself against or independent of God, and we call that the flesh. Uh, and then there's the devil himself and the host of unholy and evil and wicked spirits that also in the game. And they're in the game here too, and they're in our game. And so overcoming, staying faithful is a matter of dealing with each one of these things, and uh, that's going to be kind of up here, the sum in the term world, right? Uh, we'll get into that a little bit further. He gives them required measures of how to, then he goes on to reward or consequence, and he'll say, he'll lay out for them, uh, if you hold fast, if you are faithful, I will grant, if you overcome, I will grant you but then he also says, if you don't, he will read out the consequences. This is what's going to happen too. And so that's the pattern that we see in all of these letters. And each one of them augments this fundamental persevering, overcoming, the squeezing thing. Uh, they will talk about it in a different way. Okay, so let's uh, jump in here. Let's go to the next slide here. The tribulation in Jesus. Go up there and then one more time. There's three opponents. I call them opponents here because the Bible doesn't call them all opponents. 
The Bible identifies these as three sources that are going to squeeze us, but we have one enemy, one adversary, and that's Satan. And that's one of the points we're going to get to is that all of these three, you know, we live in a scientific place in the Western world. Our thinking is rationalistic. We, the scientific method, we have built civilization off of this. And we tend to take this mentality of uh, atomizing and taking things apart and finding out what's unique and then putting them back together and worrying and, and, and encompassing everything and building from that. We tend to take that into reading the Bible. And you can, go, you can go wrong that way. You can compartmentalize things that are really organic and really kind of different aspects of the same reality. These three, there's one enemy that the Bible identifies, and that's Satan. But he works, and he comes at us, and his mindset, his mentality is pushed in these three aspects. And we see them all here. First of all, let's put the first one. Uh, let's just, we'll do, we'll do, you can put them all up there, but we'll come to the, we'll go take them in order. The world. Uh, you use, the, we use this word in, John uses this word. Uh, he's talking about a spiritual entity. You could use the word, uh, what have I put up there? Theocracies. What's a theocracy? It is a government by a god. Okay. In the Bible, every nation is a theocracy, every one. We tend to think uh, that Israel was a theocracy. Well, certainly that is true because the God behind the government was the living God. But in the Bible's worldview, every nation is run, has a spiritual dimension. And there are gods that are connected with them. There are spiritual entities that are pushing the culture in an anti-God way. And so when we're talking about theocracy, you don't just talk about Israel. You talk about America. You talk about Russia. You talk about Germany. You talk about any political state. There are spiritual entities behind it in the Bible's worldview. Oh, how do you know that? One of the ways that... Uh, first. Uh, is in, in, anyone remember the book of Daniel? Chapter 9 uh, is a prayer Daniel offers because he's reading Jeremiah and he's seeing that Jeremiah, his prophesy is almost run out. Jeremiah in chapter 25, Jeremiah says, uh, you're going to be exiled for 70 years because you didn't do my Sabbaths. And God keeps score about his Sabbaths. There's fascinating. Why does God keep score about the Sabbath? Is because he loves the land. The land wasn't getting its rest. God cares about the creation. He loves his creation. And his people, they were kind of squatters. He gave them permission on his land, but they abused it. And so he's going to take matters, in, and so he kicks them off. Seventy years. They'd passed up 70 Sabbaths of the land. So Jeremiah, uh, Daniel's reading this in Jeremiah, and uh, he's, he's counting, he's got his abacus out, and he says, oh, this is about at the end. And so he prays in chapter 9, Lord, what's next? And the Lord sends an answer, and in chapter 10, the answer doesn't come right away. Why is that? Because there's stuff going on in the heavenlies. And the opponents, God had commissioned the answer through his messenger, but there was resistance that held him up. 
And the name of the resistance was Greece and Persia. Those were heavenly beings that were called by the names of nations on the earth. And so that's where this tradition starts. It starts much earlier in a Jewish tradition that the Tower of Babel is when all of the languages, the nations, they were united, but they all split up when God divided their language. There's nothing wrong with being nationed. The only problem there was the disunity caused by language diversification. And the tradition of Israel was that uh, God also assigned spirits with all the nations. It's interesting, why did God make a nation out of his people in the Exodus? He had Abraham people. You know, they were in Goshen. Okay, they were not in a great state. They were slaves and all of that. It's not so hot. But, you know, he had people. He had his Abraham people. But why does he need to make them a nation? It is to confront the gods of the nations. You want to do an interesting study sometime? You check out in a concordance gods and nations. And you run that through the Old Testament, and you will see how God is intent through his people to show up the gods of the other nations, the demonic powers that are behind them, that set the cultural, the cultural uh, patterns that they all are enslaved to, ruined by, and destroyed. He wants to show them that their gods are deaf, are powerless, mute. They can't tell the future like he can. And so there's another way that, no, the nations have gods, and it's not just religion. America is a theocracy. It is not a democratic republic. We have gods, and it's not called Trump or Obama. It's probably called radical individualism. It's probably called things like uh, consumerism and the other driving forces of our culture that, that turn the economy. Economists say that our economy is dependent upon consuming. It's dependent upon the unexamined upgrade. Oh, a new thing comes out, I gotta have it. Oh, really? If the old one still does it, do you? The Christian needs to assess these kind of gods and I'm not just saying these are metaphorical. I think there are real spirits behind these things. Every nation in the Bible has its gods. And God is interested in confronting the gods. And that's the world system. And we're going to see that uh, the gods are demonic. They're anti-God, anti-living God. And they, they penetrate through the system. They engage our own issues and our own needs that we're reaching around for answers. We're wired for that. But they're proposing their answers apart from God. So there's world. So where do we see worlds in these churches? Well, we see that they, the false teaching, okay, that the church of, of a Pergamum, what are they dealing with? They're dealing with the teaching of Balaam in verse 14. And what's that about? You go a little bit further about eating things sacrificed to idols. You see, the gods are really religious. And every culture at its root is religious. 
because it's driven by a god. And whether your god is secularism, naturalism, or whether it's Allah or any other god, it's still religious. If you're an atheist, you're still religious. It's all religious. So false teaching here was about the gods of uh, surrounding in the first century and eating meat sacrificed to idols, which in, is probably what is referred to as the Nicolaitans. That's probably what's going on with that a little further down in the Pergamum church too. Uh, in the next church, Jezebel, she shows up a uh, prophetess in verse 20, 20 of chapter 2. Which church is this? This is Thyatira. They're still, uh, okay, he's, he says, but I have this against you in verse 20. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Don't, don't name your daughters Jezebel, okay? And don't name your sons Nimrod. That's not a good name either, okay? Check him out in Genesis chapter 10. Avoid both of those names, right? Who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality, eating things sacrificed to idols. Religious things are cultural things. They are, uh, in one way or another, whether it's overt, connected to a religion. I spent some time in India back in March, my first time there, and the Hindu kind of subculture that just infuses so many things of their life. The caste system, the government has officially gotten, gotten away from that, and in fact, they've given all sorts of subsidies. If you are of the, uh, the untouchable class, you get practically free education, all kinds of advantages in their society to kind of compensate for the religion. But at the popular level, they still operate, and they know who's who and they still discriminate that way. And so just these kind of culture related to a religion. Secularism is a religion. And if America is going more and more that way, there's a God behind it, and there is a faith in, in it. It's a religious belief that is held by faith somewhere in its adherence. And so they're facing these kinds of things. They're facing the world culture of the first century that has a Greek pantheon, that has sacrifices, that has, uh, you know, when you, and, you know, it's not just about eating meat. Paul had to deal with this in 1 Corinthians. The, the idea of eating meat was they believed that uh, eating the meat of a sacrifice was inviting the spirit that you were sacrificing to, to engage in the fellowship. So it wasn't just, uh, let's, let's have some barbecue. Uh, no, it was a religious thing. And so you were saying things about that. You were imbibing, and these prophetess Jezebel and Nicolaitans were, were encouraging this kind of compromise with the culture. Let's go to the next one. The flesh is another opponent. This is the more intimate one, the one that we're all connected to, right? Flesh is a biblical word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It means weakness. That's what flesh, basar, and sarks means, fundamentally weakness. And so we are, there's a literal meaning of this. It's the meat on your bones. That's your flesh. We are flesh and bone. God is not. The Bible never calls God flesh. He is spirit. The opposite of flesh is spirit. 
Spirit doesn't mean invisible, ghost-like. It means vital power. It is the opposite of weakness. God is vital power. He's also invisible, all right? But the visible part is not the first meaning of this concept. It is vital power, living power versus flesh, weakness. Since we are flesh physical, we're finite, we're limited, we are easily dominated by spirit. That includes unholy spirits. And unholy spirits, Peter talks about them, they are greater than us in wisdom and power. You better be afraid if you take on a spirit by yourself. But if you take one on with Jesus, they're afraid. That's why Ephesians says, we do not war according to the flesh. You stand in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I've seen it. And you see it in the book of Acts. Remember those, those prophets, uh, the sons of Sceva? They, the demon, they, they take on this demon. They had a, the Jews had a, a robust exorcistic type of ministry. And these guys were part of this. And they, let's take, and the demon goes, uh, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but uh, who are you? And he tears them limb from limb. I went through, probably 30 years ago, I went through my demon phase, is what I say. Where I was, and I'm, what I mean by that is I was a witness to several deliverance types of ministries. It's, the Lord brought this to me in this season for about a year and a half where I saw different methodologies of dealing with spiritual conflicts, exorcism, resistance, but I was the prayer person kind of watching this and I saw stuff that made the hair on the back of my neck rise up. And I was threatened in ways I didn't know how to you know, one time the demon goes, we're sitting with a bunch of these pastors. These pastors, they were in this church and they knew about this stuff. Once the demon bragged that he came from a pastor from a, from a church that didn't believe and he says, I think that guy snowed. The demon was bragging that he made the pastor think it was all psychological. These guys weren't buying it. And so the demon threatens all of us in the room. And Somehow I got involved in that too. Well, the demon had the, the person that he was in or that he was bothering, shall I say, demonizing, claimed to have powers of being able to come to people in their dreams and terrorize them while they sleep, to invade their dreams. How do you defend that? Don't go to sleep? Well, that's not going to work too long. And so these guys, I'm sitting there, and this, this thing's ramping up, okay, the conflict and it's getting a little back and forth, and so finally just the demon finally says, okay, me and my high priest, we're coming to your house tonight. And the pastors go, great, bring it on. And I'm going, wait, leave me out of this. You know, I don't want to be, no, you know? Uh, you guys knew that. Uh, and, and these guys, see, these guys knew the strength of Jesus' name better than me. And, you know, the demon goes, you don't got any crosses in your lawn or weird stuff like that, do you? It's like he couldn't come if there was a cross. Uh, no, no, we'll take him down. You, guys, you all come down. And so I'm sitting, I, I'm living with my parents at the time, and it's time to go to bed that night. Um, there might be some uh, guests coming tonight. You know, mom, dad. <laughs> and I'm sitting on my bed, it's time to turn the light out. The Lord gave me 
I think it's Psalm 36, 9. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. And it totally reoriented my perspective. I meditated on that until my emotions went back down where they should, to peace and shalom. I meditated on that because it, I got to think, yeah, well, who cares if they're in here because somebody else is here too. And he likes me. And he's on my side and he makes them run. So I didn't care. I went to bed, slept like a, do slept like a baby. A dog baby. <laughs> I slept great. Well, that story goes on. But the point is that uh, in Jesus there's the answer to the cravings of the flesh. And that's what we're going to see is going to be the fundamental answer of how we overcome is that we get a good dose of Jesus and we keep him, our identity, our union with him close, close at hand. And so the flesh, when I say the cravings of the old man, that's who I was. I am not two parts. I am not new nature and old nature. No, the Bible doesn't talk that way. Versions talk that way. The Bible says you are old man, new man, or flesh. Those are the three ways the Bible talks about us. Old man is dead. He's gone, he's crucified, and that's no more. That's my past. That's me in relationship to Adam. That guy is gone. That guy is not living in the house anymore. All right? His habits, his clothes are still in the closets of the house. And we call, Bible calls that flesh. The Bible calls that the principle that's in my members, the law I see in my members in Romans chapter 7. Old man, he's not there, but he left his stuff around. He left it in the closet. And sometimes, new man, that's me and Jesus, I'm the new owner of the house. I think, I go to that closet and I say, hey, that looks like it's my size. That looks like it, it might fit pretty good. And then I go putting on old man habits of how the old man defended himself because he thought he was vulnerable and how he competed with other people and put other people down and had sarcastic humor. I'm talking about myself, my old man. I'm still learning on those things. But all of the habits that old man had and the old man lived by in the world that he learned from a child, from his own story, that's flesh. It's those patterns. So it's new man and flesh. Old man's gone. I am not new nature, old nature. The Bible doesn't talk. I am, I am new, all right? I am the new man with Christ. But old man has got some habits and uh, clothes in the closet still. So how does flesh come out here in Laodicean church? What are they dealing with? Uh, why are they lukewarm? Verse 17 of chapter 3, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy. Well, that does sound a little like America. We live in a radically different condition than most of the rest of the world now and that has ever lived as far as the affluence and the convenience and things we have. I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, 
You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The whole idea that I have made my, this is why Israel had to have a Sabbath. They needed to have a weekly reminder whose they were, whose story they're part of, who is the one who enables the fruit of their hands? Who's the one who gives them strength? Who's the one who answers their needs? It's not by what they do. The same issue is what Laodicean church had to deal with. Uh, It is about wealth. It is about lust and pride. Why do you think uh, sexuality and immorality is driving? If you read the book of Revelation, one of the things, and if you keep your eye open to this word immorality, or sensuality, you will see this is a dominant theme all the way through. A dominant theme all the way through, and this is what uh, Paul says, the corruption that is in the world by lust. Paul brings it down to the root of these kinds of things. The root of our our choices that are anti-God is really lust. It's sexuality. It's I don't want, and this is what the new atheists say, I don't want God to tell me who I can sleep with. It comes down to that. I even heard today that there is a, a dysphoria where there are people who, who believe, they're, tr- they're called transabled, meaning they, they believe that they should be handicapped or disabled, and so they want doctors to cut off healthy limbs. Well, it's the transgenderism in a different direction mutilating a perfectly good body because of disorienting here. But I've never heard of that. Transabled, yes. And there's a couple of doctors. But they, it was very interesting. I'm just listening to the news on this thing, and they say the reason why these people, it's often rooted that they get a sexual arousal from this type of dysphoria or taking it to that direction to hurting a perfectly good limb, oftentimes they won't cut their own limb off. They will mangle it so bad intentionally so that a doctor will have to. You know, that's, that's the disorient, but it's driven by lust, driven by sex, sexuality. That is all over the book of Revelation here. You go to chapter 17 and 18, the whore of Babylon, she is all about immorality and the merchants and sensuality. There you're getting into something that's driving the things that kind of come off on the surface as just just different worldviews. It's really rooted somewhere deep in this area, lust and the flesh. Flesh is about satisfying its needs, and let's be clear, God made us to be needy. He did. We are finite beings. We cannot. We are not like God that we can sustain ourselves. We need things outside of us. So we have to desire. God made us that way. And once you get beyond the desires that are, that are of the body, you know, food and clothes, you get into the emotional side. And we have desires there too. And psychologists say that once you get beyond the physical hierarchy, you're dealing with two fundamental desires that we're all hardwired for, and that is significance and security. 
We need these. Psychologically, we will seek answers for these. And so, yeah, we're, we're all about that. God made us this way, and it's not bad to need. It's bad to find the answer apart from where God's provided. God, has God provided for security? Has he provided for significance? You bet he has. And a powerful illustration of this right in the text is in Genesis 11 and 12. In Genesis 11 is the story of Babel. That's where we meet our friend Nimrod. He's the one. Babel is the beginning of his kingdom, it says in chapter 10. So he's there in chapter 11. Why are they building that tower, which is really a story about the city? They give the answer. Let us burn bricks. Let us put them together with mortar. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered. The two things are right there. Significance and security. Security is, uh, is the idea of having unconditional love, having love that is secure and you know it is. We need that and we desire it. There, the problem with Babel and Nimrod's crowd is they're doing God is never mentioned in that narrative of chapter 11 until he shows up and judges them. They're going to seek the answer in themselves in the city and the contrast shows up in chapter 11, why don't you, or chapter 12. Why don't you look at Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses. This is uh, chapter 11 uh, after, after the Babel episode. There's genealogies that introduce us to Abram. And he shows up on the scene now. He's ready, and he shows up on the scene in chapter 12. And God talks to him and kind of gives it the summary of what... Abraham's going to be all about in God's relationship with him. Do you see God's answer for security and significance in those first three verses? You look through that, not only do you see a, a huge repetition of the idea of blessing, which is pretty, very important from the beginning of the story, but you see who's going to give Abraham and make Abraham's name great. God will. Who will call him out of his security, his, his, his own, his, all, his native culture, and make a new nation from him. God will. So here you have, you know, the flesh and God's answer. The flesh craves and needs. God made our flesh, but he also made the answer for it, and that's why God wants, God's people say, I will I will wait for the Lord my God to worry about my reputation. I will wait for the Lord my God to make me significant. I don't have to scratch and claw, play office politics, compete and put people down. I can trust the Lord and do what's right and he takes care of my reputation and my career path. They also, God's people also say, I will find security, I will wait for security that God gives. I will, not, I will not take what the world is trying to do to satisfy the cravings and the needs I have there. Does God have an answer for that? The heart of faith says, yes, he does, and I will wait for the Lord my God. Abraham's a perfect example. He's the opposite of Nimrod there. And he's the answer for the, the same thing that these churches face and that we face. Security and significance. I mean, if you just listen to the radio, what people sing about, pop songs, they're all about those things. 
you know, and I don't fault them for it. Uh, they're singing about what we're wired for. The question is, where are they finding the answer for it? And that's the question for us. The third one up there is the devil. We've already mentioned him. Uh, I put a few uh, adjectives up there, because that's how, how he's called. He's the accuser. Have you ever notice that uh, Scripture, the Holy Spirit and the unholy spirit, they both work on us. They both try to get us to respond and provoke. But accusing is the word he's associated with. The Holy Spirit is never an accuser. What's the word that he does on us? It's called convicting. Okay? What's the difference between accusing and convicting? I think accusing is, it wants to just put you down and leave you, uh, you know, guilty, shamed, and disarmed. Conviction is still, it is rebuking, it is correcting, but is with grace. It is wooing to change. The Spirit doesn't want you to just get saved and get a new label. Justified. Yeah. He wants to change you and make your life living and abundant. And so he does it by convicting. He moves it. So he moves us. But convicting has this other attitude. Satan is an accuser. He doesn't want you to change. He wants to disable you. And there's an answer for that. He's a murderer, a liar, all of these things. And he shows up here at several points. The synagogue of Satan uh, is in chapter 2, verse 10 or 9. That's what Sardis, Smyrna was dealing with. He says, I know your tribulation, the squeezing, your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. This is probably not a reference to literal Jews. It's probably a bunch of Gentile converts, okay? It's not, he's not running down Jews here. He's talking about, probably about proselytes who are really not Jewish ethnically, but are persecuting the church. Do not fear, uh, then he says, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Now that's an interesting word, the word synagogue. Maybe, maybe there's a little translation stuff going on there because the same word appears in James and it's translated in assembly. Okay? When a poor man comes into your synagogue and you say, sit here at my feet, and the rich man comes into your synagogue, but it's not translated synagogue there, it's translated church. So maybe there's something going on here that we're not really, we're talking about an assembly. Okay, so let's maybe be a little light on the Jews, okay, uh, in, in this passage as far as the synagogue of Satan. But Satan's named here. Uh, Satan also shows up, uh, where does he come? Where his throne is. Uh, who has that? A synagogue is also mentioned to Philadelphia. They have a synagogue of Satan. Thyatira is uh, in, three, in 224, uh, the teachings, they claim to get into the deep things of Satan. Uh, you know, that's when I was in my demon phase, I, I met people who, th who thought you needed to get in to know everything about the dark side. Uh, 
I found something quite different. When you knew the power of Jesus, it doesn't matter what the dark side's up to. You've got, you've got the trump card, okay? You play in Jesus' name, I command you, and they did whatever you said. I walked away, I took a few takeaways from my demon phase, was the Bible is literally true in what it says. Singulars, plurals, what's missing is missing for a good reason. There was one occasion in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it says in verse 4, it says there will be coming people who preach a different Jesus. No title. No Lord Jesus Christ. Just Jesus. Uh, One of the sessions I was in was uh, with the the counselor. Actually, he was telling me about this session. He would test the spirits. 1 John 4 says, test the spirits. And so he would do a spiritual inventory of people. If they're, they're, you know, he needs to know their history. So like a medical history, he needs to know their spiritual history. And so if they've had certain experiences, uh, one of them was uh, speaking in tongues. If they've had that part of their life, he, he would ask them, have you tested the spirit of that tongue? And he himself, and I myself, he thinks there's three options. There's a Holy Spirit, there's holy tongues, like in now and like there was in the first century. There can be learned, so from your own spirit, that you have a phenomenon, you replicate it, and you attribute a certain thing. You attribute the Holy Spirit to it, but it's really something from you. You learned it. And then there's unholy spirits as being a source. So when someone says, have, he would ask them, have you tested the spirit of your tongue? And in most of these groups where you teach this and where it's part of the culture, nobody does that part. And so the person says, no. And so he says, would, could you mind if we do that? And so this is how he did it. He said, uh, it's quite simple. And that is on its side, I think, as far as the preferred way of thinking about this, what this means. He said, okay, speak in your tongue. And, you know, you have control over the spirit of your tongue, like the spirit of the prophets. And so they did. La, 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 la. It goes on and on. And he says, he, and then he says, I, in, a, in obedience, in the name of Jesus and in obedience to scripture, I am addressing the spirit of this tongue. Who are you? That's all he says. And then he waits. And he says, uh, but this time he's talking to me, he says, I'd done this 300 times in different counseling situations. A handful of, and most of the times, nothing happens. He says, his interpretation of that is, I think that I'm dealing with something from their own spirit. They learned something. And they attribute it to the, the gift of glossolalia, the gift of tongues, the Holy Spirit. No harm, no foul. He says, but uh, there were a handful of times when something spoke back. And I would say, who are you? And he told me this example of one of them. And I'm coming off of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where it says, preaching another Jesus without a title. No Lord or Christ. The Spirit says, stop speaking in the tongue. And he speaks in English, and the voice says, I am Jesus. And then he goes back into the tongue. And he's telling me this, and I'm going, well, that's the right answer. Spirit of Jesus, that's the one you want. And this guy knew, this counselor knew scripture better than me. He starts pressing into which Jesus, because there will be Jesuses, according to Paul, 
He says, are you the Jesus who was uh, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, buried and raised a third day? And he didn't even finish the sentence where, I am not that Jesus! Screaming full-on manifestation. Are we having a manifestation? No, just kidding. <laughs> full-on. You know, and a couple of hours later, they're resolving. They're working through this. They got a live one. But he's calling himself Jesus. Another Jesus. Scripture is fairly normative. After the Gospels, it's Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. It's with a title because the resurrection has shown the apostles who this is. He is Christ. They're no doubting anymore. And they write that way. Very rarely in the epistles and a couple of times in Hebrews, you will see just Jesus, and it's the right Jesus. But it's referring to Jesus as he lived on the earth, in his incarnate. He's not the scary, shiny Jesus. They're talking to Jesus, mortal man Jesus. And that was his name, Jesus. Jesus, son of Joseph. But Jesus Christ is resurrected. Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is resurrected, shiny and scary, exalted Jesus. So here's the, we got off our track here a little bit, okay? The devil and the deep things of Satan. No, when you know what is, when you know the real power, the counterfeit uh, once is really interested in just testing you. The weapon of Satan is fear. And the weapon of Satan, when he gets you afraid, you can do his bidding. You don't, he doesn't have to empower your muscles. You do it for you. He gets you to do what he wants when he gets you afraid. And so he, his weapon is to accuse you. His weapon is to make you afraid. But how do we answer this? Well, we need to go one more place here, the last one. Here's where we get holistic. And we can tend to compartmentalize these. The world's over here, these categories are flesh, and these categories are Satan. The Bible doesn't put them that way. They are tightly woven into an organic whole. The Bible doesn't really care where, where the lie comes from. The Bible cares more what you do about the lie. It could be. I believe demons can put thoughts in your mind. I believe they can. And I can argue it from Scripture if you want. I believe that the world system is preaching an alien answer to your flesh's cravings for security, significance, and all of the physical things, too. But I don't, I think it's very difficult to isolate them. And the way Scripture talks, let me give you a couple of examples. James chapter 4 is all about the world. And the source of quarrels and conflicts among you. In the beginning of the chapter. <clears throat> what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? That's a flesh conversation. Is it not your flesh's cravings? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, he's saying God has an answer for what your flesh craves for. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, and now we've kind of seamlessly moved to talking about the world. Friendship with the world, and he's just been talking about your pleasures and your lust. Then we go down to verse 7 or 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will... What's the devil doing in this conversation? He's there because they all work together. He's there because of Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. There's already the devil. So we got the world and the devil already, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. So you see, they're very tightly connected here. Let me give you one more, and this one, this will be a caution for us to... Uh, Take heed to what is around a passage and don't let the punctuation throw you off. It wasn't given punctuated in the first, uh, first, first Peter. Let's see if I can find first Peter. He's after James there. Okay. Chapter five. Notice verse seven. We, we know verse seven very well. Therefore, I'll read in six. Therefore, humble yourselves among the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Okay, cast all your cares on him. But verse eight, be, on, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like, that's not a different conversation now. It's part of the same one. Anxiety is a foothold that he is prowling to use. Okay. He's not, he's not starting a different topic here. In the same way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, don't let the sun go down on your anger, lest what? You give the devil a place. But here, the last thing I want to do is create fear when someone's saying, uh-oh, I, 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 I quarreled and I went to sleep with having not resolved that with my spouse. I gave the, I'm demonized. <laughs> no, okay. That's, that's the raw, that's not my intent. My intent is to say that the devil makes, he can make inroads these ways, but the issue is that you live in truth, that you don't worry where lie comes from. I don't, remember, I don't care who's in the room so long as the angel of the Lord is there too. Okay. The Bible wants to know that you is teaching, interested in teaching you how to respond to lie, to distraction, to subversion, to accusation, that the devil, that's his weapon. So now we're going to get into that. What's the answer? How do overcomers overcome? Oh, and we have five minutes for that. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll go a little bit longer. I won't abuse you too long. But we do need, you know, we've set up the, the thing. We need to finish this or we're going to, to leave incomplete. So let's go on. The next one. Here's the answer. And uh, this is going to be played out over and over in these letters. Chapter 12, verse 11, you see three things. The blood of the lamb, 
the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives. This is how they overcome. Okay? So let's take them all individually. Start with the blood of the Lamb. That's the cross. You realize that the cross, according to Paul, is where victory happened? Victory over the devil happened. When he said, it is finished, he doesn't mean I'm done here, I'm out. Uh, No, he meant I'm finished for what I came to do. And you can read in 1 John 3, 8 what he came to do. It says he came to undo the works of the devil. So the cross is about defeating Satan. The resurrection is the proof that he did that. If you look in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, you can see about the powers being disarmed when something against me was nailed to the cross. It was a decree. It's a document about me that got nailed to the cross. It wasn't nailed to the empty tomb door. It was nailed to the cross. The cross disarmed my enemy. And the rulers and the powers, in Paul's language, those are not governors and mayors. Those are spiritual hierarchies. Those are demonic forces. So how does the cross disarm them? It's, and it tells me the kind of weapons they're going to use. They're going to see if I believe they're disarmed, because they're going to accuse me, and that's what's written on the decree, is all the things I've done worthy of death. Jesus nailed it to the cross. Cross finished that. They are disarmed. They have no legal right to accuse me anymore, and that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Who brings a charge against God's elect? Christ Jesus was crucified, and so they will say, you did that. You did that. You can't. God can't use you. The answer is, who brings a charge against God's elect? It's like Luther in that that latest version of the Luther movie. I love that scene where he's walking through. So when the devil throws your sins in your face, you say back to him, I admit it. I did it. But there is one who paid for that and took care of that one. So you throw that back at him. There's where it all begins at the cross. And so his weapon against us, he's going to try to see if we really believe that. And he'll try to make you disarmed. You know, good. The things you did, you can never do ministry for God. That's the kind of stuff that plays in the heads of someone who hasn't pushed off the accusation yet. No, you are in Christ. You are new. You are in God's family. You are his child. He loves you. He is for you. The second thing up here, the no and the yes of our testimony. Did that, I guess the cross didn't come out, that, that little square was a cross. <laughs> my, my icon didn't show. Anyway, but that's what's supposed to be in the icon. Okay, it all starts with the square. Okay, the no and the yes of our testimony. Here's, here's the good stuff. The word of your testimony is how you overcome. It's the idea of the gospel. It's you and the gospel. The gospel has two parts. There's a no and there's a yes. You say no to something and you say yes to something else. And that's what the Christ who walks among the churches tells them. Over and over he says, remember. He tells them in Sardis, repent. 
He's talking about the no part. Remember where you've come from. And then the yes part is the answer who you are. You think you are poor, but you are rich. You are impoverished, but you are rich. You think you're wealthy, but you are poor. Okay? He'll go back. He tells them how to think about themselves in light of the new story, the story that he's written for you. And that's really what getting saved is about. It's about dying. And let's put the third one up there. They did not love their lives unto death. We have bloodless, we have bloodless martyrdom in America so far. In other parts of the world, it's bloody martyrdom. In fact, Voice of the Martyrs says that the 20th and the 21st century are the bloodiest of, for Christians of all church history. It's escalating, folks. It's escalating. Uh, I don't see the world getting better. And the reason Jesus hasn't come back is because the world's not good enough yet. No, I think the reason Jesus hasn't come back is it's not bad enough. It's going a different way, and martyrdom is the sign of it. When I use the word bloodless martyrdom, I'm talking about the death that we die when we say no to our flesh, when it craves for answers outside of God's answer, and you say no to it. You do what Paul says to the Romans, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That's a bloodless martyrdom but it's dying. It's dying to yourself. It's taking your cross up, dying, denying yourself and following me. There's the story that we joined the story of another as the gospel. And so I am now, I, I don't have a ticket to heaven. I have Jesus. I am united to him. That is the language of Paul. And when I get this, and when I live in this, let's move to the next one. I've got the basis of my first level overcoming 101 university class in Jesus University. What is the substance of that? Victory comes by knowing your identity in the story. That's what he calls them to in all of these lessons. Remember who you are. You have this. You are not this. And that is how we move forward. That's how we flourish. That's how we meet temptation. That's how we resist. It is by knowing who we are. That's how we move forward in what we should not do and what we should do. You know, uh, this evening, Brian and Pastor Rob, they, they treated me to Cecilia's. Is that what that's called? Mexican burrito bowl, pretty good. Okay, but when we came back, I saw the church dumpster around back. And you know, Cecilia was pretty good, but what I saw in the dumpster wasn't looking too shabby either. You know, and when we're done here in a few minutes, I'm going to get my apron on. I'm going to get a fork and a knife from the kitchen back there, and I'm going to go do some dumpster dining. You're giggling because well, he spent a little too much time close to Chernobyl, maybe. Okay. Uh, that's cracked thinking. Why? Because for normal people, and maybe I look normal, okay? For normal people, there's normal food, and garbage is not normal food. To a believer, sin is garbage. 
to the one who's trained their senses and their skill, and they are accustomed to discerning good from evil, like the mature people that Hebrews chapter 5 talks about, they can tell what's what. It It might taste good, it might look good, but it's bitter. Sin is that to the one who knows who they are. So why would I eat garbage when I've got the buffet of Christ? The satisfaction that I have for all my needs in him. See, I think that's why heaven is not, heaven is sinless. There will be no sin there, but we're not robots there. We are totally free. We're fully human. And to be human means to be free. We're going to talk about this in week four, heaven. So I'm jumping ahead a little bit there, but uh, why don't we sin? Being free. Free means that you have the choice. Well, we will be free, but we will have a freedom that is perfectly trained. And yeah, there will be garbage. You can always say, no, God, anywhere, but why would you ever want to do that? And heaven will be the experience of that. We will never, it'll be, we'll know the cheapness, we'll know the bitterness, we'll know the destruction fully. We're learning those things now, but sometimes we fall back and we think old man's ways, we think we need this, or we think, we rationalize it, we think, oh, I'll clean this up later, okay? I'm going to do it right now, but I'll clean it up later. I get forgiveness. Paul talked about that too. Why should we sin that gracemen abound, right? Don't do that. So we're in the process of, of learning who we are. And I could go a long time on this. This is the way Paul talks to his, his uh, churches. This is the way Jesus talks in this book. Overcomers overcome by going deep in who they are and their story. And they let that narrate when things come, temptations come, it deflects it. What do I need that for? No, that's garbage. Why do I eat garbage? I've got a buffet over here. Okay? Why should I pursue this? No, I pursue what is natural to me, what I was made for. And there's the way the overcomers overcome. So the last parts here, we can go quickly, are punishment. Oh, there's a good statement by Piper. Shouldn't let that go by. The Christian life is a light of faith. This, his statement captures the idea, faith in what? It's faith in my identity. It's faith of who Jesus is, of who God is for me in Jesus. You cling to that. I had a joke in Ukraine pastoral counseling in Ukraine, no matter what the person brought to the pastor, was always, you don't have enough faith, read your Bible and pray more. And they go out and thinking, what, my husband is an alcoholic and he's beating me. What do I, I, I believe Jesus is the son of God, he died for my redemption, I believe in my justification, I believe in all of that. Well, they're only half right. Everything is a question of faith, but in the New Testament, they would add, they would need to add Believe who you are. And I'm not justifying that you stay in an abusive relationship or anything like that, but that is the issue for us in our, in our, in our struggles. It is the battle for faith. Do I believe Jesus is enough? And I believe that's the question God asks us. That's, you could call that heaven's question. Whenever you face disappointment, whenever you face despair, darkness, uh, some setback. God is saying, he's asking you, am I enough for you? 
Or do you need me and this financial deal to go through? Or do you need me and this relationship? Or is it me and this diagnosis from the doctor? Am I enough? The heart of faith is learning that lesson and is learning to answer, answer its cravings. Yes, you are. And to learn to walk with God and know his nearness and to know his sufficiency and satisfaction in it. Maybe I should stop there. The last two things are punishments and reward. We're going to get to both of those a little bit probably next week and the week after. He puts out some, uh, some threats to him. I'll take your lampstand. You will not be useful for me. I won't uh, suffer you. He, he has a limit. God has a limit with Israel in the Old Testament. It was a long leash, but he finally reeled it in, and he'll do it with us too for the sake of discipline. Uh, but the last one up there is the reward. And go ahead and put the whole list Every, I only put five up here. There, Every church is given a reward. There are seven of them. And these are all what we're going to talk about on our last day, on heaven. There are different ways of talking about the eternal life that God is going to, in its fullness, unfold for us when we get home and when he says, welcome home to his people. So next week, we're going to talk about the kingdom. Because verse 19 or verse 9 says the perseverance and the tribulation in Jesus, but also the kingdom is in Jesus. And so the book of Revelation is rich on kingdom stuff. And we need, we're going to jump into that with both feet uh, next week. So I'll uh, invite you back for that. Thank you for your attention. And uh, Rob, I'll let you uh, close us out here. Let's bow our heads. Well, Father, I really, uh, really took to heart really the truth about um, our identity in Christ. And uh, that really is something that each of us, God, need to really hold on to. Lord, even now, as you see us, some of us would say, I'm ashamed. But in Christ, Lord, we need to know that we are well-loved and well accepted. And so, Father, we thank you for this new identity. Lord, we are different because we've been bought at a price. And you now reside in us. Help us, Lord, uh, not to put on those old clothes, <laughs> but, Lord, to live for you in newness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.